Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey y'all, Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started this Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. On April 24th, 2017, an article was released in the New York Times titled, People Are Seeing UFOs Everywhere, and This Book Proves It. The article, which long preceded the Pentagon UFO program story, was one of very few UFO-themed pieces to be covered in a very serious and credible manner by this prestigious news outlet. And it immediately went viral. People from all over the United States were treated to a release of data on UFO reports unlike ever before. And it all came from the rigorous and tireless work of two women from Syracuse, New York. Cheryl and Linda Costa are the authors of the UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015. The book includes over 121,000 UFO sightings. Listed are the top UFO hotspots according to the data and sighting reports down to the county level. Anyone can use the book to find out how many UFO sightings there have been in their area and how it stacks up against other parts of the U.S. Today, we talk all about how the book came to be, Cheryl's discoveries and revelations while compiling the data, and what the sheer amount of reports may mean as we head into the uncertain future of UFO studies and possible disclosure. So, without further ado, let's talk numbers with Cheryl Costa. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies. Ryan, happy to be here. This interview has been a while in the making as my <laughs> my crazy schedule, your crazy schedule. It's made it extremely difficult, more on my end in the worst of ways, but it certainly is going to be worth the wait because today 
we're going to be talking about your massive, massive undertaking of a book, UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America 2001 to 2015, which has quickly become not only a reference for many UFO researchers, but a Bible in some ways, Cheryl. Uh, but before we even get to that, I met you for the very first time a few years back at the International UFO Congress where you were speaking, and I have been following your work ever since. I was hooked immediately for many reasons. And then they invited you back this year to speak again, and some amazing things happened this year at the event. So I would love to hear all about the 2018 IUFOC and the incredible news that happened out there for you. Well, they sent me up the talk on the first day. So I was the second speaker of the of the, uh, of the convention, and uh, it, that was fun. And of course, my 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 presentations tend to be very. Thank God they gave me a wireless mic this year uh, because I tend to dance around the stage quite a bit. Oh yeah, uh, I remember. And uh, you know, I, I I a lot of people came up to me after the thing, and like I could hear the audience uh, with their humor with the humor. And that they were digging the humor. And so, you know, I do a presentation that while it's factual, and it, in this case, it had a lot of statistics and everything. I did it with a great deal of stand up comedy humor. And I, I used to do stand up comedy many years ago. Oh, really? I did not yeah, know it, that. It's a dark area of my life, but <laughs> uh, I, I did, I did do, um, I did do, uh, I did everything from open mic nights, even had a few normal bookings as a as a stand-up comic. Uh, nothing I'm really proud of, but uh, it, it was fun. It was interesting, and I, I, I understand a great deal about it. I didn't want to make a career of it. <laughs> but um, So I gave my presentation, and I was fine. Holly Andrew was just, just doing cartwheels. He loved it, you know, and all these other people were coming up to me. And I didn't think much more about it than that. I spent some time in the dealer shop, you know, the dealer dealer thing, passing out cards. We couldn't take books with us because the book is a two and a half pound book. Mm -hmm. And if we took two crates of these things, you know, uh, and, and took a hundred of these books with us, do the math, you know. And we we had all we could do to get our bags out there, little let alone card of you know a hundred pounds worth of books. Uh, so that was pretty much it. I was just hanging out in the dealer suite, talking to people and things like that, handing out these little car business cards that we had printed up. They had all the information they needed to order the book. And so we get to the we get to the banquet dinner, and I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there with um, uh, Lauren Fenton. Mm-hmm. And I had I had Doctor um, uh, oh, cra- oh goodness gracious we had an all star table really did and uh, Gordon Doctor Gordon Spear was sitting with me and all of a sudden they're, they're talking about we're oh we're going to now do the uh, researcher of the year you know and all of a sudden I see my picture flash up on the screens and going oh my god <laughs> you know and 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 it wasn't necessarily for the book I mean the book was a contributing issue but. The whole the whole overall thing was the fact that I've been writing this column for almost five years, and as it was put in the in the in the video they did was you know doing nothing but generating positive press about the UFO community about UFO research and getting positive press in the in the process. Right. Uh, and then when the book came out, New York Times, uh, who had never had a nice thing to say about UFOs for the last seventy years. Um, there was a situation where the uh, uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Times walks in, throws a two-and-a-half-pound book on their desk, and said, some, some ladies in Syracuse did science. You know, so <laughs> uh, 
it was all of that. And it was the whole community, the thing. And what was special was it was all women that won this year. It was really, really fantastic. Uh, uh, the lady who won for films, she won two awards. Wow. And uh, she won on two separate films. And there was a Lifetime Achievement Award for a long – I don't remember the lady's name, and I, I apologize for that. But she won a um, – a lifetime achievement award. Her daughter accepted it for, her, and she was like one of uh, what I'm going to say one of the old time UFO uh, researchers. We're talking 60s, 70s kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, she got this lifetime achievement award, and I was delighted to see it, you know. And so it was a, a really wonderful convention this year. I did have my bad moments at this thing. Really? I, would you mind? Would you mind talking about that? I'd love to hear yeah. the drama that oh, goes behind these things. Okay. <laughs> well, the drama goes two levels. Okay. I had I had a number of people who were physically bigger than me, men, corner me a couple of times out in hallways, where like in a box corner, going like by a door or something like this, and tell me they were from the Air Force and we're watching you, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it got a, it got a little intimidating and and such and. Uh, a lot of people say, well, I would have punched him out. You know, no, I wasn't about to get myself arrested in Arizona. Yeah. You know, and uh, so that was that. And then I had one guy that came by, was looking through our book, and then he, he, he says, you ladies had some man check this work, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> and he, he was pounding on my book, you know, pounding on the book. You women didn't check this out with some man, you know. And I just looked at him and I said, no, <laughs> you know, I said, you're talking to two brilliant people here. Don't bother me with your ideas. You know, uh. so that was probably the ugliest thing that happened. And um, I can't for for keep your show somewhat PG. I can't tell you what I said to him. So mm-hmm. with with the extensive career and things you've done with your life, Cheryl, I can only imagine, you know, what that did and uh, what it conjured up. And oof, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad he decided to keep the peace for sure. Well, you know, you know, something one of the guys that really got this guy was six foot six. He had to be. Uh-huh. And he was built like a freight train. Big old bubble. Right, you know, and he's got me cornered in this this one area out there in the hallway there, and uh, it was during the change of uh, like between lectures and things, and he's up there giving me this whole hard time. Right, we're watching you, you know. And I said, if you're trying to intimidate me and frighten me, I said you're barking up the wrong tree. And I said, well, I'm a combat veteran, and I went through a sex change. Not a lot scares me anymore. Right. So. <laughs> and I got him all flustered. And he went toddling away. <laughs> you know what? That's enough for some people, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's talk about UFOs. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, I uh, as much as as a playwright myself, I know you've done some playwriting in your time. Drama's great, but we're here to talk about UFOs. And uh, I kind of want to start for any of my listeners who may not be familiar with your work, Cheryl. Um, I learned about you through my local newspaper, the Syracuse New Times, which is amazing. So I would love to hear, first of all, how you got started on this journey to researching UFOs, how it ultimately led to journalism, and then the Syracuse New Times. I know that's a lot to throw at you, but let's hear the origin story if we're going to go comic book style. The origin story is kind of fun. Okay. I had my first sighting back in 1965 when I was about 12 years old. Uh, Real short story. Uh, we were visiting some relatives about three weeks before going back to school from the summer vacation. 
Uh, we were coming down a hill from their farm, and the sky was clear blue, not a cloud in the sky. And my mother suddenly has my father pull the car off the dirt road. She points at this thing out in the sky, and sitting out there like a rock is this silver ball. Now, I'll give you an idea how big it was. Hold your arm out and look at your little fingernail. That's how big that sucker was. Okay. My mom explained. Of course, NASA was new at that time. You know, it's only about five, six years old. So she says it might be something the Air Force is doing, something NASA is doing. Maybe it's a weather balloon. It might be people from another world. And she was very gentle about explaining that. And I was fascinated. So finally, my dad gets the car back on the road, and we get down. We get down the hill. We turn onto the state, the, the state, you know, paved highway. So I crawled up, and my brother and sister were toddlers. You know, I crawled up in the back window of that she- old Chevy Impala and just sat there staring at this thing, wondering who they are. And when that thing decided to go, it was like something like you see in a Starship movie now, <laughs> gone. And that changed me. And and I think my next sighting was about six, seven years later. I was in the Air Force and I was going. It was uh, Christmas Eve, 1971. I was going uh, 1130 at night. I'm going down to go to midnight mass with one of the guys from my barracks, Tom. And we were walking along. And again, it was one of those clear night skies uh, because there was low light pollution. Uh, uh, it was a gazillion stars. A galaxy was overhead, all that stuff, you know. And we're walking along, sort of facing westward, and we see this streak going across the sky. And we're figuring, well, it's a jet, you know, that we're in Vietnam, you know. Yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden it stops. And then Tom says, wait a minute, jets don't do that. And, and we thought, well, maybe it's a chopper. He's up there high. But yeah, but choppers don't fly that fast. And I said, well, maybe it's a UFO. Maybe it's going to start dancing. Suddenly, it starts dancing like a little fairy up there. Did zit, 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 you know, type of thing. And then, gone. Tom and I were sitting there just stumbling for words. And when we got the Midnight Mass, certainly we did not have our minds on Midnight Mass when we got to the chapel. <laughs> yeah. And But, you know, I didn't tell anybody that story until about 15 years ago. That's some, amazing. Some Native American friends. You know, I shared it with one night over over campfire. But up until then, I never shared it. Now, that didn't mean I wasn't well-read on the topic. Um, in 1998, 19, about 2000, or, I'm sorry, 1990, I was away on a business trip. And I used to go, travel a great deal. I was in the aerospace industry, and I traveled a great deal. And I was out in Ohio, and I got hospitalized, and I had to have abdominal surgery. And what was the problem was my... Uh, uh, I had packed up my apartment, put it, everything in storage because I was going to get a new apartment when I came back from this two-month business trip. And I came back after 10 days in the hospital, and I didn't have a home to go to. So I called around, and this one friend of mine said, hey, wait a minute. You know, he says, hey, my father's on chemotherapy and treating for cancer. And he says, uh, I'm staying with him on the other side of town. He says, tell you what, he says, here's the keys to my house in Laurel, Maryland. Go up there, feed the cat, you know, stay as long as you like. So I did. Well, when I got into his house, it was a disaster area. I had to do a lot of picking up and cleaning up, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, honest to God. I mean, this guy had uh, um, um, uh, 45 shells on the floor in his living room, you know. Uh, you know, he was a gun collector and everything. But this guy had 
first edition hardback books of every major UFO book that had been published up to 1990. He had about everything Stanton Friedman had published that time in hardback. Wow. It was a floor-to-ceiling bookshelf, four feet wide, packed solid with nothing but UFO books. Wow. And some of them I had read in high school, things like this. But uh, the, the, so, hey, he didn't have cable, so I had nothing better to do than sit back and, and read these books. So it was kind of like a six month college education in UFOs. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm well read on the topic, but I wouldn't say I was any kind of an activist. All right, so fast forward 2011, I retired from Lockheed Martin unceremoniously. A whole bunch of us got walked out the door and said, Ah, you're retired now. You know, <laughs> we were 30 years and above. Okay, they started with the 45 year guys, came down the hall to 40 year people, and they got to me and 30 year people, bam, gone. Yeah. So uh, I took a job with a, um, a news, another newspaper. It was the Post Standard, and I was working in the technical department. And I put out, I made the plates to make the newspaper every night. Imagine cookie sheets without the edges on them, you know, the, without, and this thing is like a laser printer that burns it into the metal. Okay. okay or, or an emulsion on the metal. So I would make about uh, anywhere between 100 and 400 of these plates every night. And presses were rolling. Everything was on. The presses were rolling. All I had to do at this point, it was about, eh, about uh, 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. All I had to do was sit back for about the next two hours and let them roll that 700-ton Swiss press. So they're rolling along. Everything's fine. I decide to go on. I'm online there in, in the, uh, the the office there in the in the uh, tech room, and I, I go on to CNN.com to see what, if there's any interesting news, you know. And there was this little sidebar story, November 5th, 2012, and the sidebar story said, UFOs have been declining since the 1980s. Maybe they were always just an urban legend. And my gut instinct said, wait a minute. That feels like misinformation in a big way. So for the first time in my life, I Googled out and found the National UFO Reporting Center. And I looked up from about 1980 up to about 1995, the number, just the year in summaries, and I dropped them into a quick, uh, you know, Excel spreadsheet, and the thing went up like a rocket. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at this bar chart, and my first impression was, what memo didn't the UFOs get? <laughs> so being it was the first time I'd ever been out to the New Fork site, I started over the next couple of evenings when the presses were rolling, I'd sit back and read some of these accounts. Now, I'd been told like everybody else, only nuts and kooks and crackpots file these reports. And I'm reading these reports and they're all very sincere. Most people are just average people saying, I didn't believe in this stuff, but this happened to us and, and, and we saw this and they explained it very sometimes very detailed, sometimes only two or three lines. But the thing was, everything I saw was very sincere. You could tell the crackpot ones, you know, but the, most of them were just average people trying to get something off their chest. So my degree was in entertainment writing. I'm not your classic journalist and uh, entertainment writing and production. Uh, that's coming from the playwriting and radio writing and television writing background that I had. So I took a couple of these accounts. Now, I couldn't tell you who they were, you know, the who, what, when, where, why is what the press, the journalists have, right? Right. For their rules. Uh, I couldn't tell you who because most of these reports are anonymous or are shielded out from the, the from the reporting service. They won't tell you who it is. Okay, I can't tell you why. And if I could, I'd be getting a Nobel Prize. <laughs> right. But I could tell you what, when, and where. 
So if if a report came out and said, oh, me and my girlfriend were on the hood of my car and we were watching this guy, I suddenly it became Tom and Susie were on the hood of their car, you know? The facts were always correct. Sometimes I had to embellish the story a little bit to be able to tell a story. And I went around to about 12 different newspaper editors in upstate New York. I got thrown out of offices. I got escorted out by security. I got laughed out of offices. I had one editor look at me, and she was the nighttime internet editor. And she she looked at me and said, what brand of tinfoil do you wear? (laughs) Of course. And I was feeling pretty down about this. And finally, I had worked with a guy by the name of Larry Dietrich. And he had been a copy editor over at Post Standard for years. And they went through a whole big downsizing and bought a whole bunch of people out and gave them early retirement, all this stuff. I heard he became the editor-in-chief over to Syracuse New Times. So I made an appointment to go over and talk to him. And when I got in to talk to him, before he even looked at my four or five sheets with the proposal, poured me a cup of coffee. We sat back, and he started talking to me about UFOs. He had read about every major book I had ever read. By the end of 25, 30 minutes, he says, I am sympathetic. Show me your slides. So we get done. I show my pitch and what I think the demographics are, and I'm proposing it not for his printed paper, but for his newly developed online edition. Because I figured I had – there was more, as they say, column space available on an internet webpage versus column space that takes up – that costs money in a newspaper. Right, right. And uh, that kind of real estate is very valuable. So he said, okay, we'll try you out for a month. I said, okay. So I gave him five articles, and here you go. We'll talk. And end of the month, he calls me up. Cheryl, I want to talk to you. Come on over to the office. Well, that's it. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And I get in there. I'm a little late getting into the meeting because the parking was terrible. And I get the I get the parking taken care of, and I get upstairs about five ten minutes late to the meeting. And I walk into the office, and he stops and he sees me come in. He says, "Well, there's our rock star." And I looked at him. I says, "Rock star?" He says, "Yeah, you're drawing more page views than everybody combined." And that's where it went. So they said, "Just keep doing what you're doing." And then eventually I ended up with uh, Ty Marshall as my digital editor, and we found out a bunch of things. We found out when I was getting – we could figure out, could figure out when I was getting censored, not by the newspaper. If I, told you, if I told you in an article that we posted and we said something like Susie and her parents went to the ice cream store, and, they, well, and while they were ordering their custard, they saw three shining discs fly over the ice cream store at high speed, followed by a couple of Air Force jets. You could – on Google, you couldn't find the article. Of course, Mr. Mr. Snowden told, to explained to us much later that uh, this, uh, the NSA had had its fingers into Google for years. And at first, my man, my editor thought thought you know I was just being a little paranoid. Then he started noticing it. So after this happened six or seven times, you'd Google the art name of the article and you couldn't find it except on Syracuse New Times. But other articles would get posted by UFO pages and things like this and reposted, and, and, and it kind of had a little life of its own. So we got a hold of the guy who runs uh, Dirk, uh, who runs the uh, UFO Digest up in Toronto, and he noticed also that this is happening. So what he would do is if he saw he couldn't find it on the Internet, he would go directly to Circus New Times, copy the article, and we gave him permission to post it up at, 
up at UFO Digest so it could be seen internationally. <laughs> wow. That's how we worked around it. Right. Oh, that's so cool, though, that they were able to, you know, cooperate and, and do that, knowing full well that clearly, you know, you were getting censored from, like, some unknown entity. And, and you know what? That doesn't surprise me at this point, you know, that they, they're able to control the, the search engines and all that in terms of, like, certain keywords, I would imagine, that you're using. Air Force, UFO, this, that. I can only imagine. If it mentioned... If it mentioned anything military, it, it, it got squelched. Right. So the bottom line was uh, that went on like that way for about two, about a year and a half, two years. And then uh, by early 2015, Ty Marshall came back to me and he said, I want you to get a, get a Facebook account. And I said, I want you to promote on Facebook. And that's when we really took off. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so we've, we've been enjoying very, very – Wonderful page view, page view quantity for uh, since we did that went through Facebook. I, I share with upwards of about thirty five to forty UFO groups on Facebook on a weekly basis when my articles come out, and we went from there. And then coming out of two thousand fifteen, and you'll love this. Uh, two thousand fifteen, I speak at the International UFO Congress. That's the one where I met you. Yes. I've been to the one. I've met been to the one in 2014. You know, but during one of the mixers they had for like speakers and like that, I met Dr. Gordon Spear. At the time, he was the um, uh, chair of the astronomy department at Sonoma University in California. He's now retired. He said, "Could you get me county data?" Because he saw I had some county data for New York State, but it was kind of spotty. And I said, boy, that's a tall order. MUFON sort of collects it, but it's not very good. And New Fork certainly doesn't collect it. In fact, I, call, I wrote a letter to MUFON, said, or not MUFON, but New Fork. And I said to him, I said, do you guys, can, is there any way you can make county data available? We don't collect it, you know? I said, well, how can I get the information? Stick a pin in a map. That was their answer, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I told him I would research a way to do this. And the way we decided to do this was uh, I spent the next three or four months pulling down – I pulled down all of the New York State information. It was about, at the time, it was about 4,200 records. And we sat there with Google, and we looked up the counties to these cities. It took us four or five months, okay? Mm-hmm. And we said, we can't be doing this. But then we started sharing some of our charts with other investigators here in New York State. Guys like Bob Long, a former uh, state assistant director, things like that. And everybody knew that there was a Lake Erie effect. We all knew that. Right. We did. My chart showed that there was a Lake Ontario effect, too. It's just you couldn't see it until you put county data to the sightings. Then suddenly you started seeing all these clusters. And uh, there was all this stuff we were discovering. And so one night in October of 2015, Linda and I were sitting down having a beer in our pub and – we're sitting here saying, you know, uh, Kitty Hoynes, for anybody who knows Syracuse. Oh, I know Kitty Hoynes well. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, same here. And uh, we're sitting there in Kitty Hoynes. We're having a pint and having a bite to eat and sitting there talking. So look at all the cool stuff we discovered. And he said, what if we did this for the whole country? Because the trick was we're both former government contractors. I was a, government, uh, a military industrial complex type of contractor she worked for a firm that supplied research librarians to government libraries wow okay she used to work at the national academy of science 
for a number of years, and then she was the head librarian at the Environmental Protection Agency for 14 years. Okay, now that's a research position. She can tell you more about toxic chemicals and economic poisons than you can shake a stick at. So the bottom line, we said, well, it would take a year to do it. But we said, yeah, let's try. Because we had, when we were doing New York State, we figured out what we were doing wrong, and we wrote down processes in a spiral notebook. This is how you clean up the data, step one. This is how you clean up the data, step two. This is how you add county data to it, step three. This is how you fix this. This is how you fix that, okay? Because the data, is, the data we downloaded was very dirty, and uh, we did. So if you count the time we wrote the processes and the time we actually worked on the UFO sighting death reference, it took about 18 months. Oh, wow. Okay. Every wow. weekend for 16 months. That's that's a lot of work. Like, I mean, to a lot of people, 18 months doesn't seem like a long time. But when you're doing something that you guys are doing, compiling data, that is a huge undertaking. This isn't writing prose, you know, like coming out of someone's imagination. This is doing hard research. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Just numbers everywhere. You probably saw them everywhere you looked. It was crunching. It was cleaning up the databases. Do you know what the number one problem was within the databases? 3%. 3% now. 3%. And we had 121,000 records. Right, okay, right. For the, for the entire United States. 3% people either didn't give us the city or they would write in something like, I'm afraid to tell you. Or my wife tells me not to tell you. My husband mm. said I should not tell you. I'm afraid the sheriff will come find us, you know, and and stuff like that. Okay. And then some, a lot of them just left it blank. Now, that's the first major problem with the cities. The second major problem is people cannot spell the name of their town. <laughs> that could be a problem. And we've we had major issues with that. It leads on to what our future, one of our future projects. So we got the county data in there. We cleaned up things as best we could. You can't run a spell check because un you'll uh, unfortunately change the spelling of something you shouldn't probably. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we cleaned it up best we could, got everything ready to go. I started generating charts, and I gave them to Linda. She had the government publishing background and said, we're going to uh, – the first thing I got to qualify in this thing. Linda, you know, people say, oh, what did Linda work on? Is she, you know, she's just the little lady in the background, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, she's short, but she's not just the little lady in the background. She was <laughs> the brains of the entire operation. I've got an entertainment writing degree. She's got the real science degree. She's got a master's in library science, for God's sake. She's a, she's a trained researcher. So she kept me honest on a lot of things, and she said, this is stuff. This is what we have to do to make this a, a valid book. And oh, by the way, we're not just going to have a cute little book with some cute aliens on the front. We're going to publish a real reference book because that's sadly lacking in the UFO community. And everybody's crying, oh, we need more science. Well, this was science, and she's, that's how we're going to do it. Right. Linda was the brains between the, uh, behind the entire operation. I had the spreadsheet background from two sources, one working at Lockheed Martin for 30 years. But to learn how to do the pivot tables for those charts and graphs, I was working at a bank part-time here in, in downtown Syracuse that was a corporate bank. And I was in the back room in the invoicing department, and I learned how to do pivot tables from 
bankers, and they know how to really manipulate Excel like you would not believe. So that's how that part of it came to be. So I guess my next question for that would be then, so you you got this experience, you know, with the different areas that you and Linda, you know, came from. Where did the source material for the actual reports come from, Cheryl? National UFO Reporting Center mm-hmm. was easy. In fact, what we decided to do was we uh, we made the decision to do the book, okay, mm-hmm. in in October of 2015, and we said, "Tell you what, let's wait until January 1st. Download the New Fork data." Now that was easy because in spreadsheets, if you've got a web page and it's got it's broken up into columns, things. If you go into Excel, you can go into the data feature and pull a web page down into it, and it will pull right into a spreadsheet. And we downloaded every single state in the union individually into separate spreadsheets, and uh, we did it starting at five o'clock in the morning on New Year's Day morning. Now you would not believe the bandwidth you have on New Year's Day morning. <laughs> Everyone's hung over, right? Nobody's on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had the entire, all 50 states in the district downloaded in about three and a half, four hours. Oh, wow. Okay, so I started cleaning that up, and I was probably in the late April, early May, and that's the point where I needed the MUFON data. And we went through some hoops with them to get the stuff fine, and I was not, make, I was not making any headway. I get they kept coming back with more and more questions. They wanted to know what I was doing. It was getting to the point where it was starting to infringe on what I considered our proprietary product. I don't want to tell them what I'm up to. Okay. And Linda did Linda. So Linda's the executive. So she got on the telephone and 20 minute phone call. I monkeyed around with these people for four weeks with emails. She gets on the telephone. 20 minutes later, I had the file. Wow. You know, she was talking boss talk. And yeah. I guess it worked out. And uh, so we started cleaning up the MUFON. Now, that was another whole can of worms because the data was dirty in a different way. The dates didn't always jive with Excel. Okay. Anybody who's ever worked with Excel knows that dates, can, if you import them from databases or other sources, sometimes uh, the, the date time thing doesn't sync and, uh, it, it, and it gets messy and the date isn't right and things like that or you can't process or scan the date like a, with a sort or something like that it gets missing mm-hmm. okay, very so that took a lot of extra effort but in most cases MUFON this is the interesting thing uh, New Fork for most states was about 60 to 70 percent of the data MUFON was 20 to 40 percent of the data okay depending upon the state there were three states where MUFON was the dominant state and they, they had most of the data, the okay. ratio changed, okay? But that's something most people didn't know because I had people trying to tell me that MUFON and New Fork, oh, they had the equal numbers and, you know, no, 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 no. Yeah. New Fork has by far most of the sightings. Well, I guess, you know, let's sort of get to that data. So how many reports total are we looking at in terms of what you guys covered in this reference? Now, understand, the, there was some corrupted data in there. Probably we lost maybe about 130. Okay. okay. But in the scheme of things, actually, I would say more like 150. In the scheme of things, it was, it was, that was nothing. 
because the, the the amount of reports that we had worked out to about 121,000. Now, in the book, we published 121,036. If you quoted me now, I'd say 121,000 because uh, we lost 18 in there because of spelling or corruptions and things like this. And actually, the number is around 121,000. Wow. I for, mean, from 2001 to 2015. Right. Right. And that's a staggering number to to think that that's what was reported. What did not go reported? I, I can only imagine. In terms well, we of think that. we've come up with statistics since then that suggests, uh, you know, if you go to a UFO community, people will stand up and tell you one in 10 people reports what they see. But usually that is determined. It's some kind of UFO talk. Stanton Friedman or somebody will go up there and say, how many people have seen a UFO? All the hands go up. And they say, how many people report them? And most of the hands go down and somebody counts the numbers, uh, the hands that are still up. And it works out about 10%. The thing is, at a UFO convention, you're preaching to the choir. Right, right. Okay. So I saw some other surveys that were done, uh, one by the Nas- uh, National Geographic. Another one was done by Fox Pictures last year. And the best number we're coming up with was what a couple of, investigators suggested that it might be out around 40 or 50 one in 40 or 50 people reports what they see all right so if we're averaging uh take a number like in 2001 the reported numbers were about 3500 for the whole country that is accurate but it's a lie and i'll tell you why in a minute now you times that by we'll say 50 and that's 175,000 potential sightings, <laughs> and only 3,500 got reported. Now, you, you come out to 2012 where we had like uh, 13,500 reported sightings total for the country times that by 50, and we're talking about 675,000 sightings a year, and only 12 or 13,000 were reported. So also the other thing we had to point out in the book, the early years of the 2000s were in that that 3,500, 4,000, 5,000 range, Mm -hmm. and a lot of talk shows, particularly these morning disc jockey shows, wow, it went up in three tiers across, you know, 15 years, yes and no, okay, We've correlated it to people having broadband. Mm, okay, okay. More people had were just starting to come online. Ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one were just coming online with reg- regular dedicated broadband instead of dial up. So more people had the ability to report these things. And then about mid two thousands, around two thousand five to, to about two thousand eight, uh, it takes another jump up. Well, more people in the burbs started getting it. Mm-hmm. And then when you got out towards the late 2000s, from about 2010 to about 2015, just about everybody has broadband except for some rural areas. Right. So so we extrapolate back and say we think we've been averaging around 700,000 sightings a year. And that's an approximate between about uh, 575 and about 850,000. But right now we're saying our guess is about 750,000 sightings a year and only about 10 or 12,000 are being reported. In reality, Cheryl, it's just a number. But when you think about that, like that's so many people seeing something in the sky and so many skeptics and debunkers saying there's nothing up there but conventional aircraft. I mean, that's insane to think that on average there's that amount of sightings per year. Yeah, but okay, let's take that 675,000 number, okay? Yeah. Times 0.04. 
4%. The most conservative guys, guys like Ben Moss, the head chief investigator for MUFON, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay, He's one of the more conservative guys. The range of people that say the amount of sightings out there, which ones are the real thing, comes down to somewhere between 4 and 20% which the really strong investigators will say between 4 and 7%. I went with 7%. Ben tells you 4, okay? Okay, okay. That 200 that 675,000 4% works out to about 27,000 where maybe the real thing. But remember that's a guess. Right. Okay? They can all be the real thing for all we know, you know. And then if you take that 27,000 and divide it by 15 years, it's about 1800 a year. Uh, and this is this is this is of the, that four percent, okay, and then you divide that by twelve, which is monthly. That means there's in the United States there's about a hundred and fifty of these biblical events happening a year. Uh, in fact, if you divide it, it, it happening a year, uh, yeah, yeah. And then if you divide that by twelve, you're dealing with you're dealing with how many you got per month. It, it's still a staggering number, and that's using the most conservative number that any of the investigators gave me. Right. Well, I'm glad that you know you went that way with the most conservative because it's still overwhelming to listen to that. Um, for for you, I mean, yeah. in my book, we I, we we said it was seven percent yeah. in our book. Yeah. Uh, and and some of your your radio talk hosts that uh, you know. Uh, still want to be consoled that maybe they're not real. Yeah. Uh, we'll say, well, in her book, she says 97% are misidentified. And and I didn't say that. I said that 7% is what the experts tell me. I'm not sure what is misidentified. Right. So uh, who knows? Yeah, who knows? I mean, well, let's, let's go with the data right now, Shell. So we've got... Uh, ah, no, okay, because you sent me something in the mail there, and you quoted that you were calling quoting cities. Cities, you know, cities, cities, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so there's a big difference. Okay, and okay. This is, this is what blows everybody's socks off. Mm-hmm. Okay, the top five states, California, 15,836. Florida, 7,787. I can do that, roll that one off the top of my head <laughs> in, my, in, in my pajamas. Texas, 7,058. Washington State, 5,226. Pennsylvania, 5176. And, of course, we got to say New York. It's number six in the country, 5141. Okay. Now, that's, that's, the, um, that's the, the states. Now, what's important, because we added county data, we can tell you what the counties are. Right. And that is a very different animal. And, and I'll explain why. Okay. Now, counties. Where do you, where, where do you think the most, most populous county for UFOs is? 3,000 counties, over 3,000 counties in the United States. Hmm. I'm going to say, I, I want to say like one of the coasts for sure. I, I don't know if I'm way off on that, but I, I don't know. I have no idea, to be honest. Okay. Los Angeles County. Now, okay. we're, not talking Los, we're not talking Los Angeles City. We're mm-hmm. talking Los Angeles County, which is considerably bigger area. Okay. Right. 3,212. Now, that number is more than 40 of the individual states by themselves for their sightings. Oh God. <laughs> One county, okay? Ooh. Now, the second most popular county for UFO sightings. Now, in our book, we say it's 2019. But after the book came out, we found out that over 500 sightings, the people spelled Phoenix wrong. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, and if, I do that instead, myself sometimes. Instead of spelling it P H O E, they did an E O, and we didn't count them. Now, if we were to put that same chart out now, it'd be about twenty five, uh, twenty five sixty three, about twenty five hundred. Okay, okay, that's Maricopa County, Arizona, essentially Phoenix. Okay, okay. Now, and then Cook County, Illinois. Okay, it's the Chicago area, San Diego, California, and King County, Washington State. Mm-hmm. Now, those are the top five counties. Now, you, in your note, you noted my, my cities. Phoenix is the number one city for sightings in the United States. Right, right. Followed by Las Vegas. Now, Las Vegas as a state came in about number 26, and I got all kinds of hate mail when the book came out from people in, in Nevada. Yeah. Oh, but we've got all kinds of UFOs. You yeah, know? Area 51 fans, I would assume. <laughs> oh, God, they hammered me. Yeah. Okay. But the consoling factor for them was Las Vegas came in number two, Seattle came in number three, Chicago number four, and Portland came in uh, number five. And I don't even think that's correct. Uh, come to think of it, uh, Portland is not correct because uh, we found out that uh, there's a dozen Portlands and they all added up when we did the spreadsheet. I so see. what we have since taken that out. Uh, we found I, we did have another city, and off the top of my head, I'm not drawing what it is. Uh, I think it's Pittsburgh. Uh, no, it's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay. So that gives you an idea. Just because a state had the majority of the sightings doesn't mean that – their cities necessarily have them. Uh, the other thing that came up out of all of that was people asked me, what about Maricopa County and Los Angeles County? Why do they have so many? Yeah, that's my question. Okay. That's where I um, live right now. We have a theory about this. Okay. Okay. I saw – in fact, I didn't even know this until I was watching you know, one of our you know, upper channel U- – some UFO documentary. Okay. Los Angeles has had – UFO sightings since before we had manned flight back in the 1880s, these things flying up and down the valleys. All right. Now, then in February of 1942, they had the the Battle of L.A. Right. And so what we figured, there was grandpas and everybody telling their kids and their grandkids, you know, about – all the stuff we used to see, and then they had the Battle of L.A. went 1,200 artillery shells, and oh, my God, you know. And it became a cultural phenomena, and people sort of just became conditioned to look up. Maybe we'll see something cool. Kind of backed that up, Maricopa County. Uh, 20 years ago, Phoenix Lights, you know, mm-hmm. two football long, field long triangles going over, blotting out the stars, and what do we got? We got the same thing. We got people, the kids, parents telling their kids, you know, this is what we saw 20 years ago before you were born and everything. And everybody's looking up. And that's what we think is going on. We think it's a cultural phenomenon. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could definitely see that. And I mean, there's so many variables when it comes to in terms of like the amount of sightings being reported, things being cited. And one of the things I found interesting in other interviews that you've brought up, Cheryl, is the idea of weather being a big factor in all this, you know, in terms of like climate and how clear the skies are, what time of the day it is like these all factor into this. So I guess Linda discovered that. Yeah, yeah. I would love to hear what you guys sort of tripped on upon with when it came to that aspect. We had already done the charts and graphs mm-hmm. okay i had all these objects all on a big disc for her and she was laying out the book and we were doing this like the new york times reported in our sewing room we had a very big sewing room and up there in strathmore in the big house that we were in yep okay just a few blocks away actually small world small world 
the room we were in was the uh, was the warmest room in the house, and that's where we put a kind of like an upstairs parlor, and we had our sewing machines up there and everything. Uh, of course, right the day after the New York Times article reported that we had all of our computers in our sewing room, and he described it with like many sewing machines and cutting tables. Vogue Vogue dot com published an article about UFOs, essentially ripping off a lot of what the New York <laughs> Times article was. They had a pretty girl in a lovely dress staring off into space, you know. Yeah. And it, it was a cute article. And if you Google Vogue dot com UFO, you'll probably find it. it's still out there. Oh, I'm going to do that. We were looking. Linda looked up over her terminal. I was writing the the analysis chapters. It was the last thing we did, and I was writing that, and she says. Uh, Cheryl, did you notice that there's a latitude issue with the with the the monthly charts? And I said, what? Now, I had originally been told by several investigators in New York State, I had this chart where I did UFOs by month, January through December. And they, everybody thought it was a stupid chart. Why are you going to bother to put it in the book? That was the attitude. But we decided to put it in there anyway. As it turned out, if you're up in the New England states or New York State and go all the way across Michigan and all those northern states right there on the Canadian border – Going down into Pennsylvania, if there's a quiescent number, January through about May, it starts to tick up a little bit, June, then July, and there's like a little peak, July and August are through the roof, and then starts ticking back down again in September, and in October, November, December, are back down to this quiescent level, uh, some basic level. Okay, and it's a consistent basic level. So now, who's the, who are those people? Those are the dog walkers and smokers. They're out there day in, day out, rain or shine. And MUFON investigators, when they're looking at a month's worth of uh, UFO sightings, the first thing they tell me they scan for is smokers and dogs because those people are out day in, day out. They know what the sky's like, and they know what's not normal. So I looked at the chart, and Linda shows me a chart like from Maryland. And then a couple samples all the way across on this, uh, roughly the same latitude going across the country all the way to California. And we see that peak is coming down. That middle peak in July, uh, June, July, August is coming down. It's flattening. When we get into deep south states, it's statistically flat. Those, those bar charts are statistically flat. Oh, they're bumpy, but they're statistically flat. And what we came out of this was temperate weather and leisure time. Now, how did we come up with leisure time? Have you ever heard of the Wednesday effect by John Keel? Very, very little, but I am a little familiar with it. Yeah, please explain. Yeah, well, back in the mid-1970s, John Ke- the late John Keel, he is the author of the Mothman Prophecies. Now, most people will know that. Yes. Okay. okay. He had about 800 to 1,000 punch cards with UFO sighting information on them. He, ran them. he got some professor at a university out in Colorado someplace to run them through one of those big – you know, warehouse size, you know, 360 computers they had in those days, right? And they came up that all the sightings were on the, – the majority of the sightings were on Wednesday. Hence, 40 year, for 40 years, we had the Wednesday effect. Everybody said, oh, the UFOs are all on Wednesdays. He suffered from a small data set. Here we are in the 21st century. We believe in big data. Big data tells us big trends. So we crunched those same numbers. It came up before we put the book out. And uh, when I was talking to some people on Facebook, a couple of researchers reached out to me and said, what about the Wednesday effect? You know, And we ran the numbers, and son of a gun. 
It's statistically flat during the week. It's bumpy, but it's statistically flat during the week. Starts to tick up on Friday, goes through the roof a little bit on, on about nine, nine, seven to 9% on Saturday night, uh, on Saturday, and then it ticks back down on Sunday to about what Friday was. But it's still statistically above the rest of the week in most states. Now, there's a couple places in the southwest, like Colorado, where it does tick up a little bit more on Wednesdays for some reason, but not it does not surpass the Friday-Saturday night numbers. So that we discovered that the weekends, when <laughs> people are off. That makes sense, weather, yeah, yeah. Okay? Now, the only thing, place that this kind of got goofy, so we went down to Florida, deep south state, statistically flat, except for one thing. January and December were spiked. Okay. okay. Snowbirds. They go oh, down. They go yeah. down to Florida, and they all clear blue skies. It's warm. Hey, Harvey, look at that. You know, I mean, that's what it boils down to. You go to Hawaii, and you see these spikes four times. I went to a travel agency and said, "Does this look anything familiar to you?" And he said, "Yeah, those are those are uh, tourist cycles, okay." And again, they get out there in the islands, clear blue sky, a clear dark sky in the in the in the Pacific Ocean, and oh my God, what's that? You know. Now, Alaska, I had a an Alaskan MUFON investigator talk to me at the convention. We had a nice long chat because Alaska, all the sightings are in January. February, March, April, May, June, July is like in the dirt, and it starts going back up again. Well, what's the deal? Well, first thing I figured out, having worked up in those latitudes at one point when I was in the military, um, they suffer from a thing called white nights, where it's dark six months out of the year. It's also very light a number of months out of the year. Right, right. So it doesn't get dark. When do people see UFOs? Predominantly when it's dark and they see something shiny going across the sky. Yeah. So that's why when you look at the Alaskan monthly chart, it um, you get January through December and you look at this thing and it goes over and it goes down into a dip right in the middle around January, August, or July, August time frame. And I had a MUFON, Alaskan MUFON investigator back me up on that. That makes sense, Yeah. Wow. We didn't know until we plotted the numbers. Exactly. And again, you know, proving the point that the numbers do not lie. I mean, that's that's really interesting. And those, again, are variables people don't think about. And another one I found really interesting was, um, okay, so we all know about Pine Bush, you know, everything that happened in the Hudson Valley area. Huge, quote-unquote, flap at one point. So, of course, that's got to be a huge number, a hotbed, right? But you actually found that that's not really the case in terms of the surrounding areas in New York State. Uh, could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to speak in Pine Bush uh, this coming May, I'll probably get lynched. Uh, <laughs> there were five other counties that had far more sightings than Pinebush did. Hmm. And I went nine rounds with a bunch of people. I wrote an article about it in my, in my column. And oh, I got all kinds of hate mail. And he said, but we had 5,000 people see that sighting. I said, yeah, but that, that particular sighting on that day, that's 5,000 people seeing the same sighting. I don't count that as 5,000 sightings. I see that as one event. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And then I ask him, did you guys, did all these 5,000 people report these things to New Fork or MUFON? Oh, they're crap. Okay, fine, that doesn't, if you don't report it, I can't count it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so I run up against this problem. Uh, in New York State, the um, major places for sighting UFOs in New York State is Suffolk County, Long Island, 
Interesting. Montauk Point. Hmm. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then it's a what? It's New York County, which is essentially Manhattan, and then Erie County, and then number four is Nassau County, Long Island. So Long Island itself has got you know over a thousand, almost a thousand sightings in it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In your period, just in those two counties. Right. So that's a big deal. And uh, I'd been writing about Long Island for a long time. In fact, I identified a thing down there called the Great River River Triangle. There was a cluster at the Great River Inlet, and it seemed to be kind of a triangle, and I called it the Great River Triangle. But uh, uh, that was more of a journalistic. I needed a good headline. But (laughs) (laughs) but, the thing is, New York City. Now, Now, let's go one more step further. Where are all the sightings in New York State? 19 percent of New York State's 5,141 sightings follow from St. Lawrence County up on the St. Lawrence Seaway all the way across Lake Ontario and down to into Lake uh, Erie to the end of what they call the St. Lawrence Seaway. Right. 19 percent. If you come down the Hudson from Lake Champlain all the way down the Hudson, ignore Long Island and just go to the Atlantic Ocean, it's 32%. 51% of the sightings in New York State are on those two waterways. Whoa. That, yeah, see, I mean, I had my personal UFO sighting, same as you, at age 12, on the St. Lawrence River. So, I mean, there's got to be something to that. We could, we could guess, we could make speculations, but yeah, that's really interesting. What, what do you think about that? The idea of like maybe USOs or, you know, you the know, bodies of water having something to do with it. Canadian Navy chased the number of USOs up the St. Lawrence Seaway mm-hmm. and out to the ocean, out to the bay. They, 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 they chased the number of them. You just Google Canadian Navy USOs, you'll find stories out there on the internet. What we did find, though, remember I was telling you about we found there was a Lake Ontario effect. Yes. When we put the county data to it, we found out that there was almost as many sightings in Monroe County, essentially the Rochester area, 
as there were out on the Niagara frontier in Erie County area. Mm. Almost as many sightings, okay? And a little bit of research back in the 19th century, even going back into the 18th century, 1700s, they talked about there was a – people thought that there was evidence that there was a – and I got this from the Canadians. This is not an American side. I got this from the Canadian side. There's – Lord says that um, uh, they have suspected that there's a civilization living under – in fact, the Native Americans said this. Uh, there's a civilization living under Lake Ontario. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that raises all kinds of uh, hairs on the back of your neck. You know? Oh, yeah. So that's that's part of it. Now, if you add into the Finger Lakes, no one individual Finger Lakes lake area had anything that stuck out by itself. In fact, they were rather lackluster. We just looked at a county on Seneca Lake or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was usually a county on one side and a county on the other side. You know, these these things go up 22 miles and just border between two counties. But when you took the entire Finger Lakes region as the state defines it and count those counties, you come up with another 27, maybe 30 percent. So, God, does that mean that 70 percent of the sightings in New York State are around major bodies of water? That's a really good question. It rattles you to think about it. You yeah, know? there's got to be something to it. Now, you, you brought up a question about time of day. Yes. Okay? Yeah. We didn't really have data on that person. We have it, but we don't have it. Mm-hmm. You know, first thing, when we got done with the database, we had county, state data, uh, we had national, state, and county data. We could have taken it a step further and given us a municipal city breakdown per county. The problem was it would have made our book about 900 pages. It would have been like one of these unabridged <laughs> dictionaries. Right. And, and the two and a half pound book by itself right now is a lethal weapon. <laughs> and also, and uh, so we said, no, we're not going to bother. Plus, it would have probably added about another eight months for us to complete the book. And we wanted to get it out there. So the problem was people don't spell the city's rate. So we, since we can't just easily do a fix on the spelling. I've had to go a few hundred sightings a day, maybe a half hour to an hour a day for my eyes go crossed. <laughs> and I have to literally touch every single record of 121,000 records <sighs> to make sure the cities are c- correctly spelled. Yeah. Now, that's easy because once you get down, say you get a, a stretch of two dozen cities or something like of the same name. Uh, you look you look at the best spelling there and the most common spelling and then you and also look at the fact that there people might have the wrong cases in there, that type of thing. I'll do it all capital letters or all small letters. And you pick one that's the proper case of uh, of a capital letter and all lowercase letters and you just kinda drag and drop it in, you know. Right. It's not a big deal. But it takes time and it's tedious work. So, okay, here's where I am right now. Linda and I are talking about putting out uh, several books. One, a city's directory. And the city's directory has none of the charts and tables, but has a breakdown by state to the county level alphabetically and under each county, a breakdown of all the municipalities in that county. So say a county had 75 sightings over the 15-year period. We can give you a list of whatever, maybe it might be five count, it might be five cities and, and villages, that type of thing, or it might be 25 or 30, you know, and it has a breakdown. Now, we did this for a couple of journalists, uh, Philadelphia newspaper, 
ask us for this kind of information, so we went in and just cleaned up the Philadelphia area spelling. So gave us mornings, you know, a couple hours worth of work. Um, we did the same thing for uh, Cook County and the county just below Cook County, which I, I slips in my mind right now. And we did it for a newspaper up there in the Chicago area that wanted to know what the municipal breakdown was. And as a reporter would come to me, I would I would look at the scale of it. it was, if it was an easy thing to do in an hour or two, I would do it for them. But what we're hoping to be able to do is put out what we call a city's desk reference where you can look up a state, pick a county, and it goes right down to the municipal level in that area. We have it broken down for all C and Y right now. I do it in presentations when I do talks here. And uh, Onondaga County is in the center of the state, has the most sightings in this area. We are 161 for that 15-year period. If you go back all time, all the way back to 1890, uh, we have over, during that 15, from 2015 all the way back to 1890, uh, there's about 191 to 200 sightings total. And that's a, that's a lot for a single county. Yeah. See, that's what's cool. I mean, that's the county I grew up in my entire life. And that's that's a sense of pride to hear that, that it had like the most in that area. And I think that's what's really interesting about your book, too, Cheryl, is that every county, every city, every state, you know, they take pride in hearing these numbers. And I think that's why it got so much attention when it came out. Every you know, newspaper was picking this up and making it, you know, kind of making it their own, which was really interesting. And I can imagine pretty tough for you, you two as well, having to kind of like cater to each city, each state. I had just retired a couple of months before. Yeah. This book came out in March and we just started getting a little bit of press. And then the New York Times guy came up, Ralph Bloomington, one of the guys who wrote the December 16th, 2017 article. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he came, he literally came up on the train and took a hotel room and spent a day with us in our front room there in Strathmore. Uh, we don't live there now, but uh, he, he, he spent a day with me, four or five hours vetting me. Linda came home from work. He spent another three, four or five hours vetting her. And then we p- packed up, went down to Kitty Hoynes and had dinner and, and drank the evening. <laughs> but um, and talked the evening away, as they say. And uh, the bottom line was, you know, he was just blown away, and so was his editors. And that's why there's been this shift that they're actually doing serious research on this stuff now and trying to break this whole disclosure thing down. And I'm pleased that Linda and I had something to do with getting them to thaw out. Absolutely. I mean, that's what a lot of people don't realize is, yeah, like this whole Pentagon UFO program thing, like it's interesting and it's extremely like I look forward to where it's heading in terms of like the way journalism is approaching it. But a lot of people don't realize that like your book and what you're doing sort of paved the way for that, that that ridicule factor had been shed already in order for this Pentagon story to come forward. Yes. Yes, and yeah. the goofy thing was, and one of the things that they remember what their headline was with our article, and this, in, in, in a UFO. Did you ever think you'd live to see today the New York Times printed a UFO article in Science Magazine? Nope. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, I had to prick myself. I really did, you know. And uh, the, the 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 remember the title of the article was "People Are Seeing UFOs Everywhere in This Book." 
proves it. And that just flattered the hell out of me and Linda, believe me, it really did, you know. Absolutely. Now, you know what's interesting, though, with, with this whole thing with the book? Mm-hmm. I've only been invited to one, con- one conference, one convention. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. It's yeah. really goofy. I've had a number of them push back and say, oh, well, you're just talking about data. That's boring. But, you know, I, I had 2,000 people rolling in the aisles over there at the IUFOC because I have a, a great deal of humorous presentation when I'm sharing the numbers, you know. Yeah. And, and I made it interesting for them. And uh, it's not just dry numbers. Now, the book has all the charm of a bank ledger. You have to admit that. This is not a get a cup of tea and curl up with this book. Uh, unless you're doing research uh, or you're really interested in what the secrets of the universe, which is what we've got in this book. You know, it, it's not the kind of, like my old editor, uh, 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 Larry Dietrich, says this isn't exactly a page turner. And I said, yeah, I know that. But remember that what the title is. Linda specifically said, we're going to make a reference book, a book that will sit in the reference section of a library just like the census books. Right. And that was the focus. And I mean – Again, like I met you at the conference and, you know, your presentation in uh, 2015 was it was so captivating that you were the first person I I came up to after it and was like, oh, my God, I want to learn more about your work. Now, (laughs) now, you know, in terms of this book, like you're saying, you know, it might be dry to the layman person who doesn't find it entertaining. But that's not like you said, that's not what it's about. It's for anyone. And I'm talking like, so you dropped off a copy of this book to my parents' home in Syracuse so that it was waiting for me when I went to visit them. And I'm not kidding you. The minute I walked in the door, my mom, of course, gets up, hugs me. My dog jumps in my arms. My dad's sitting there, you know, on the couch reading your book, (laughs) you know, and he was like so amazed and looking at like, oh, I've been there. I want to see how many sightings were there. Oh, I grew up here. I want to see that. Like, that's what it's about. Like the individual looking at these numbers and then the researchers using it when we want to refer to something when we want to find out what happened where and when and how many like that's what this is but in terms of presenting this to to the public show how do you think the best way to go about that would be like you said you've only been invited to one conference that's that's ridiculous in my opinion especially when when they hear you on interviews or they see you in person see how animated and passionate you are about this stuff what do you think needs to be done to change that uh there's two schools of thought one school of thought says that uh, i'm not famous enough and uh they 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 want a name Mm -hmm. okay and they're not interested. I already had a, one prominent producer of uh, UFO conferences tell me, oh, we're not interested in data. That's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Yeah, but I, I, you, I'm not going to tell you who it is on the air. Trust me. Okay. I'm not going to tell you who it is because you, you, will, you would fall off your chair if I told you. Ugh. But I'll tell you, you know who went bananas about this book was Stanton Friedman. Awesome. He, he, he held the damn thing. I had a, a, a preliminary version with a couple of chapters with me at the, uh, one of the cons. Uh, it was a MUFON conference in 2000, uh, it, it, sometime before that. And he looked at it. He says, my God, you're publishing data. I says, is that a good thing? Yes. <laughs> and he, stu- he stood up waving the papers over his head. Somebody's finally publishing the data. You oh, know? man. You know, and it was so cute, you know. Um <laughs> You know, the, the next two we're working on, one, we had the c- city's directory. I've had a lot of requests for uh, international information. 
And two weekends ago, I cleaned up the National UFO Reporting Center's international database. It only had about 8,500 records in it, but still, that was pretty telling. Yeah. Um, because of the way they collected, they didn't have like a column for cities. They didn't have a county for countries. What they had was the initial field would have like a city and then in parentheses, um, the country. But sometimes they would say the city and the parentheses near in parentheses and then parentheses the county, mm-hmm. the, the, the country. Okay. Uh, sometimes they didn't put the parentheses in any number of things. There was all this extraterrestrial verbiage in there. Okay, so it wasn't easy to pick it out. Thank God I used to be an IT professional. I had to sit here and write some code in uh, in uh, Excel code to go in there and sort that out. And it was about eighty eight percent effective. It cleaned up most of it, and then I've had to go down. And probably five percent. I literally had to go to, through and touch about five percent of every hundred uh, of the sightings, and they're pretty much cleaned up. And I made a request about two weeks ago, over the last two weeks, to two different directors of investigation at MUFON, and I specifically gone to them and said, "Would you please do give me a dump?" of the international data from 2000 to 2017. Okay. Now, I've done this to 2017. We're trying to do an update, so to speak. Okay. And so we hope to have, and we're not going to do a lot of charts, but what we are going to do is we're going to organize it in such a way. And we had a lot of, I'm gonna, I don't want to say hate mail, but we had a lot of serious mail that said, why don't you make this a Kindle book? Well, the charts and graphs didn't, didn't we, we had one Kindle book. It's on my Kindle. It looks like hell. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it charts and graphs don't do well on Kindle, but the way we're going to build it out uh, for this, we think we've got a good model for what a Kindle book should look like for a quick reference book. And so we've, we're, we're hoping to have the city's directory in a Kindle format. We're hoping to have the international in a Kindle, Kindle format. Oh, cool. Yeah, see, that that's the kind of thing I think will appeal to the younger generation a little bit mm-hmm. more because they're so, you know, like giving them a paper book now and they're like, what do I do with this thing? But in terms of that, let, let's talk a little about the UFO field in general, Cheryl, before we wrap things up here. Um, the lack of attention that the data gets, but also the lack of attention that female researchers get. <laughs> I, I don't bring this up often on the show because, like you know, it's a very... It's a boys club. So, you know, I don't want to ask a guy why they think that is because we don't experience it. We, we, we don't we don't go through that adversity every day of having our work scrutinized 10 times more than a female researcher would. So why do you think that is and what can we do to maybe alleviate that and change that? Well, you know, Justice Gin- uh, Ruth Gator Ginsburg was asked how many women that should be on the Supreme Court. She says, nine. And, and the reporter said to her, but don't you think that's imbalance? She said, nobody thought it was imbalance when it was all men. Okay. I, I brought the point up to a bunch of people because I've heard, okay, I've heard several things. Now, we got two issues going here. Okay. Yeah. We have issues of women not being given the time of day in the research. We have an issue with, well, when I first started putting my data up, uh, sharing some of it before we wrote the book, I had all kinds of trolls coming in, and I'm not just saying trolls. I had all kinds of investigators coming at me and telling me, well, you didn't bet this, you didn't bet that. Well, okay, let's talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. To this bet question, I didn't go out there and bet 121,000. One, I didn't have a time machine and go back to 2001. (laughs) Okay, but the other issue is, 
and the point that I made out to people, I said, this is the era of big data. How, for how long have we in the UFO community, all the books were out there about this crash or that crash. It sounded like an FM radio station. The best UFO crashes from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know? And it, it got old. Linda, when we were talking about doing this book, you know, again, we were talking over dinner and a beer, and she said, you know, let's, let's do something nobody else has done. One, let's add up all the numbers. For one, nobody's done that. She said, I went out and researched it. The only compilation there is out there was part of the Condon Report, and it's, what, 50 years old? Yeah. The other problem was, she said, all the books tend to be centered, focused on one crash or one incident. And some of these authors seem to almost own those things. Like, they, that's my crash, you know? Right. you know, And they don't want anybody else to write about it or anything like that. And they won't share data, you know? And so we decided to do strictly 21st century data. Now, so a reporter asked me this recently on a radio show. He said, but you didn't – it's been said that you didn't vet these. And I said, I don't have to. They were published – they were put out there in those internet on the internet, okay? It wasn't my responsibility to vet them. I knew a certain percentage of them might be hoaxes, but I left it in there because there's a formula that says some percentage is hoaxes. And if I took them out, it would have messed up the formula. And it's a very tiny amount. It really is. And then I looked at this and I said, okay, what we've got here is a situation a lot of people in the UFO community with the books they're writing and everything are looking at an anthill and they're doing individual books and studies on an individual ant. Okay? <laughs> what, what did we do? We backed the camera back and we said, wow, look at that pattern of all those ants marching around, marching around the, the anthill. That's big data. Yeah. And other sciences are using big data. I, who cares if it's not 100%? We wanted to see the trends. Now, here's a discovery we got made recently, and we presented at this uh, eight slides at the UFO Congress. Okay, And this was new data. At the time that I presented those slides, the information was two weeks old. Okay, That's how new it was. Yeah, We did s several very low-level low states, and then Dr. Spear did California. took him like four or five days. His wife was about ready to divorce him when he got <laughs> done with it. Oh, I felt so bad about this. The question was this, and what is scientific uh, method, right? Mm -hmm. what? You ask a question. That's what this is about. I ask a question, and I said, Dr. Spear, do you have any idea whether or not we could convert all of these times we've got to star time, sidereal time, LST, the, the time when the, gal, uh, when the stars are overhead? It's a 23-hour, 56-minute day. It's shorter than a 24-hour day. So a star you might be directly overhead with you today will be overhead four minutes earlier tomorrow and four minutes earlier, uh, uh, eight minutes earlier the day after that. Okay, mm -hmm. it keeps creeping back four minutes every day, so it's a moving target. So I said to him, "Is there a predominant time when the UFOs are coming are being seen against sidereal time, star time?" Do they all come? Do they all come when Taurus is overhead or something? Statistically, the whole chart should have been flat. It should have been a, a bumpy statistical chart. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. There's a specific time people were seeing all the UFOs, according to star time. Mm -hmm. Now, civil time, normal civil time. What's on your clock? 
Most of the sightings is low rumble through the day, and then gets up after about six o'clock, seven to about ten o'clock at night, essentially bedtime. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when most of the sightings were seen. And most people say, "Well, duh," you know, yeah, that's when most people see these things. Okay, that that is what you would expect. Sidereal time, he cranked that. He had to convert the times that in the states where it was uh, daylight savings time, so he had to look at the the months that were associated with those sightings. Yeah, and he had to convert them to daylight sa- from daylight saving time to standard time. Then he had to correct the spelling on those states. Remember, I told you there was a problem there. Yeah. Then he went out and bought a disk with all the latitude longitude information, and we inserted that into the database, and he crunched it. Oof. And guess what? There's a, this time called about 1830 or 1800 sidereal time. That's 6 o'clock star time. Okay. Well, guess what's overhead from about quarter to 6 to about 6.30 star time? The galaxy. Mm. Dead straight overhead. Wow. It was consistent from... Iowa and Wyoming, which was the first ones where he tested the program out, and then he crunched California, he did New York for me, and we did Arizona. And it was consistent. It shouldn't have been if it was a fluke, if it was nuts and crackpots. Are we going to do the whole rest of the country? No, because it was too time intensive. Now, maybe once we get all the spelling corrected, we might take a shot at it. But uh, he, re- he, he values his marriage to his wife, <laughs> and I don't have those skills. Yeah. He does. Okay? Yeah. But we've we got a snapshot here. We know there's something here. Maybe somebody else with more time and resources living in their mom's cellar will be able to do this. <laughs> you know? um, but I don't have the time for it, and neither does he. Right, but right. we do know there's something here. And how many scientific discoveries started with one little tidbit somebody discovered, and 20 years later somebody said, "Wow, you know, look what they found. Let's see if it goes bigger than that." You know, and how many things like that were discovered like that? Exactly. So. It's it takes like one person to pick up the ball and run with it. And I think that's that that's what's very important. And one of those people you mentioned was Stanton Friedman. I mean, we now know that this dude, after 80. You know, he's turning 84 this year. He's finally retiring from the UFO field. That's a big deal to a lot of people out there. And, you know, we start seeing this new generation kind of cropping up, Cheryl. And before we get to what's next for you, I'd love to know your thoughts on what would you tell these younger people getting involved right now in UFO research? How, how should they get involved? Where should they turn? And what should they expect when they get into this crazy thing we've all decided to do? Well, there's an awful lot of doosism. Um, you didn't pay your dues. Yeah. Oh, I heard this over the last three years. I had all these people just ragging on me on the groups on Facebook. Oh, she's just, you know, she hasn't paid her dues, you know. She, she's not established like so-and-so-and-so-and-so, you know. And I wrote one article out there and said, gee, is it so, is it so devastating to the field of UFOlogy that a, uh, a, a few women are out here doing their own research that's not nuts and bolts research? A lot of guys only go with the nuts and bolts. They only want to see what the cockpit of that UFO looks like. We decided to go study something else, something nobody else was looking at. We found our own niche. And sometimes some of this stuff is too squishy for what I'm going to call the white male community of the UFO community. Right. Okay. And that's an issue. For new people coming in, I, my advice to them up until this point and continues to be, if you like, the, you like this stuff – 
find yourself a niche that somebody else isn't – and this is what people in astronomy will tell you. You know, remember Vera Rubin who discovered that the, that the galaxies are flying apart and, you know, nobody else was studying that. And her attitude was, you know, in those days in the astronomy community, if you said something like uh, people say, what are you studying? And you said something and everybody laughed. You knew you had a niche. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I told these – I've been telling these kids and said if you want to study this stuff, don't go where everybody uh, – don't go where everybody else is. Find something that's a niche and go go drill on it until you, until you get some answers and then report – and then publish it and report it. The other big problem we've got in this community, we don't have any clear institutions for peer review. Amen. Yeah. I caught so much crap. From what I'm going to call the nuts and bolts researchers and investigators, because I didn't fit all 120,000, I said that was never the objective. Yep. You know, and and I had these people come to me and say, "Oh, you didn't do this and you didn't do that," and I said, "Yeah, but you didn't do this. It didn't matter because in the scale of things, the the the, the big data trends." were more important than the individual sightings, which is what all the investigators will beat you up on. Oh, yeah, but we, we've got it right down to 4%. You know, I didn't care. I, as a journalist, had noticed that most people were very sincere with their sightings. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to sit here and cross-examine them and say, oh, you probably just saw an airplane with one running light out or something. I'm just going to say, I think maybe they saw something amazing because 39 other people or 49 other people didn't report what they saw. But these people were moved enough to report what they see. Very good I say that makes, that makes it more unique. Absolutely. The, you know, being compelled to actually report it, something happened, and it was, an ex- it was extraordinary to that individual. And I think yep. that's, that's very important, that human aspect to all this, how it changes a person, how they perceive it, and what, it, what, what impact it leaves on them. I, mean, I think, you know, the aftermath of a UFO event is just as intriguing as the event itself. Yeah. 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 There, there, is, there is a fallout event in, for individuals. You know, um, Spectrum Cable did a special on me up here, uh, a, a, yep, long, yep. a long form piece. Yep, I saw that. And, and I thought they were just going to run it one day. Well, they ended up uh, running it the day I sent a reporter over to talk to me in the apartment, which I wasn't expecting. I had just gotten back. You know, and I had to run around here and clean the place up. Yeah. You know, uh, you know but she came in and Talk, put a microphone on me and talk, and we just talked about the, st- the topic matter, and I showed her some stuff from the books and everything. And she had that for B-roll footage. And then they came over to the Liverpool Library where I gave a presentation to about 100 people. Now, something you said about you know millennials getting into this, that audience was very gray. There was maybe four people what you would consider millennial in the audience. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was my age. Now, what does that say? Okay, but I had about 100 people in there. But – the 100 people, they, the library didn't budget enough time for questions and answers, and we, we had to be literally thrown out of the place. Okay? <laughs> and uh, so the bottom line is we, they shot foot. They sent two film crews over, and they shot, shot footage, and they put it all together in a nice long-form piece, and they ran it on the 11 o'clock news. But then the next day, actually for the next four days, they, it was a holiday weekend, I think, uh, and they ran it 55 on the hour for the next four days. I got 75 freaking phone calls from people all over, and not just here in Syracuse. I was getting them Elmira, Binghamton, Corning. You know, um, the, the, apparently they were running all across the entire state, and I was getting calls. And the, the 
you know what the calls were? I know you'll understand. I had a sighting 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago on one case. Wow. I needed to tell somebody and get this off my chest before I die. And this is what I listened to for over four days. Spectrum and I are talking about the idea of me doing a UFO road show mm-hmm. and basically going around to all the places here in New York, keep it a New York-centric thing, and go around to all their news areas as their crew would support me. We'll do a talk at some big uh, library or VFW or something like that up there in that area and then talk to people afterwards on camera. Kind of a grassroots disclosure. Yeah. Okay? Trying to get people out of this idea that they had to hide what they know. And uh, that's what we've proposed, and they're they're chewing on it. That's awesome. Again, just those are the types of things that just you know spread the word and get more people to come forward. The more we get this out to the mainstream public, the more they're going to be accepting and come forward, you know, and up that data, up those numbers. And I was excited to learn, and this is kind of an exclusive on Somewhere in the Sky, as you you haven't talked about this much yet, but you have a new endeavor that is only going to multiply that by God, who knows how much. So I'd love, Cheryl, if you could tell us a little about what's going on with uh, with KCOR. Okay. Um, we, there's a lot of really good hosts on KCOR digital, uh, digital network. And um, they're a well-run radio station, but they're a, a radio network. Uh, I used to be a talk host in Washington, D.C., so I know what a good, a well-run radio station is like. And um, I wasn't going to get involved with broadcasting again. And then I had a couple of other uh, talented people, uh, people like Erica Lukes and things like this, said, God, we'd love to have somebody like you on with us. So I reached out to the uh, director, uh, Tina, I can't pronounce her last name, but uh, she's the, the, she built KCOR. And um, I proposed an idea for a particular show and a particular time slot. And we had a good hour and a half talk this afternoon. We're in the process of uh, trading contracts and all that right this minute. And uh, around uh, May 1st, I'll be launching a show. Um, we're not going to do it on the weekends like everybody else. I'm going to do it mid midweek and in the middle of the day, like about 11 or 12 o'clock in the morning type of thing out there. It'll be about 2 o'clock in the afternoon in our time. And the idea was for those people who are – they can't stay up late you know, and, 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 and have the same energy – talk and the same content talk that a show that's on at, you know, like, kind of like midnight in the desert, you know, uh, who can stay up to listen to that? Oh, you know? Not me. <laughs> you know, uh, and I used to be able to listen to it only because I worked at a newspaper and got out of work at two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, you know, yeah, yeah. but uh, I, I can't. In fact, when they had me on, when George Knapp had me on, I literally went to bed about six o'clock at night and then got up. So about four o'clock in the morning, so I could do that last hour of uh, midnight or um, the Art Bell show with him, yep. or the uh, no, 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 um, um, coast to coast, right? And now I'll give you another one. George Norrie won't, and his producers won't have me on. Why do you think that is? Well, I've heard two stories. One, they thought that they, they talked about the data when the book first came out, hmm. but so is it? Is it? They think the material is too boring. I personally gave a copy of the book to their producer. There is another camp of people saying, hey, Cheryl, you're a transsexual and they don't want you on. You're too weird for them. <laughs> too weird for coast to I know, coast. I know that's a cop pot calling the kettle black here, you know. But <laughs> um, it's it's we don't know why, and I can't get a straight answer out of them. And I have asked them. I said, why haven't you? I've got the sem- – this is a quote from somebody else. I've got the seminal book on UFO statistics, and you guys won't talk to me? 
Yeah, I, I it is the seminal book, and what I think, you know. Uh, George Norrie's an entertainer. George Knapp is a journalist. And I think that's what's important. And I think, you know, thank God he's the one who interviewed you. I, I can't even imagine what, you know, kind of hack questions Norrie would come up with, you know, to ask someone like you. Um, I've got one more. I got one more cute one you'll like. Oh, let's do it. You know, I got the interview a couple of weeks ago. I hit him for an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luis Alessandro. Yeah. The guy, the, 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 the Pentagon guy that retired and went to work for uh, to the stars. Mm-hmm. And I sat here and talked to him for about an hour. And, of course, their PR guy was listening in and everything. And what we did not ask the questions other people asked. In fact, we had seen the interview that he taped for the International UFO Congress for uh, Alejandro. Right. And they, and they basically asked everything I, I thought of asking. And Linda and I talked about this and said, no, 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 no. We're going to ask a different set of questions. Okay, first thing. This is a girl thing, okay? You don't ever ask a direct question. You ask us kind of a question around the edges, and you get the you get the answer you're looking for because you ask a question around the edges. Mm-hmm. It's sneaky, you know. Women have been doing it for years. Uh, <laughs> and, and Linda wrote thirty questions for me. I didn't, you know, how all these other interviews people saying, "Well, I can't tell you because of my security my security oaths." I didn't get that. I got an answer to every single thing I asked. Wow. Okay, and we haven't completely d- typed out the transcript yet because I got the flu a few weeks ago and didn't have time. But I'm getting ready to type out that. My, is my my editor at Circus New Times is thinking about publishing the entire transcript. Yes, you know? please. But but one of the questions that came up, I said, look, I've I've, writ- I've been telling people. People say, well, has anybody else done this kind of a book like you've got the desk reference? And I said, in a non classified environment. I'm the first one in a classified environment. Maybe they have. So I asked him, I said, I've got this fantastic book on UFO sightings, uh, 121,000 sightings using both national databases. Did you guys have a classified database? And the answer was simply yes. But at the end of the interview, he wants a copy of my book. And I told him I'd send him and Tom both one. Wow. That, see, okay, so the fact that you – this book is going to be in the hands of, you know, essentially the face of ufology right now to the stars, whether that's a good thing or bad thing, we – you know, that's yet to be determined. But the fact that they have it in their hands, I think that's going to open doors that I can't even imagine. Well, I know, Lewis, uh, I, had, I had just won the Researcher of the Year. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom DeLong won it last year. So Louis said, "Wait a minute! Didn't Tom just didn't get didn't he get that last year?" And I said, "Yes, he did. I got it this year." Wow, you guys are in the same club, you know. So, you know, <laughs> so maybe I'll get an interview with Tom at some point. But I, I'm I'm excited about some of the stuff that's coming out and everything that Two Stars is doing. I know they get a lot of criticism, but I think there's some fantastic stuff still to come on. And my sources at the New York Times tell me that there's a lot of other stuff still cooking. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, again, yeah, I'm trying to be hesitant and careful with getting too excited about it all. But at the same time, like, they're producing, they're producing data, they're producing videos, they're producing information. And not a lot of researchers can say that. Oh, that's something else for the millennials. I'm an old time activist from the trans trans, GLBT community. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I had the communication tools on these computers, when I went to film school, it took you months to make a film. These kids shoot it on a cell phone these days and have it edited and, and got a soundtrack on it and out on the uh, out on YouTube in a couple of hours. Yeah. If I had had tools like that back in the 70s and 80s, I can't imagine the things I could have done. 
Yeah. Okay. With the, with the activism effort I was doing, so I'm I'm excited that these millennials are coming in because they have all the most best communication tools this culture has ever had. Yeah. And and, and something's going to give. I I really think disclosure is very much in our future, but I think it's going to continue to be a, a drip drip splash, a drip drip splash, kind of like we had with uh, December 16th. It was a, a splash, and we're going to get more. And as and as long as people don't riot in the streets because of the information, most people I talk to, not of the UFO community, went, "Oh, yawn, we already knew that. Go, the government lies to us about everything. Why not UFOs? You know, that yeah. was the attitude from non-UFO people. Exactly. It, it that's the other thing is like you know. For so long, many UFO community people, you know, they they say, I don't trust the government. I don't trust the government. Uh, Whatever they say, it's a lie. And then this story comes forward where the Pentagon's saying, look, we did investigate this, and here's what we got. And now people are like, oh, okay, yeah, we believe it. We believe you. Yay. It's hard. It's a hard – it's a, you know, between a rock and a hard place, I think. What bothers me right now in the UFO community is the two national databases have some problems. And I'm trying to communicate the information to them, and they seem very resistant to make any changes to improve the way they, they collect the data. I'll give you an example. Uh, when we published the book, people noticed on our chart for the shapes, there was a D-I-S-K and a D-I-S-C, disc. Both of them were disc. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, why did you do that? And I said, that's the integrity of the database. One, one organization had D-I-S-K, one organization had D-I-S-C. And we were trying to preserve that integrity, even though they, they spelled it differently. And I'd like to see them get together and start standardizing their shapes. The other thing I would like to see them do is like MUFON has this problem rather seriously. A lot of people think there's lots of UFO sightings at midnight. Know that if you don't put a time in, it automatically defaults. It gives you a midnight indication on the time. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, we didn't know that either until until we started noticing how many of them were. And then we started asking around, so people told us that was a default. And it appears New Fork has something similar. So, you know, we've, there's got to be a way to improve this. But just me giving an example, I have made two letters right now in the past three weeks trying to get a, a dump of the international data. And it's being met with silence at MUFON. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe they're, excuse my French, but pissed off at, at me and Linda because we beat them to the punch and thought something up they didn't. <laughs> that you know, that, that could be it. We've had, a, we've had a number of people say that to us. And and they're, they're being very, very stodgy. Again, the MUFON's gotten into this business of being very, excuse the expression, in business. <laughs> okay? But I wrote an article last week that basically said the illusion of money. And basically the flavor of it is, hey, everything costs money, guys. You want a database, it's, we got to support it. You know, if you want research, we've got, there's got to be some money generated. You want conferences, there's got to be some money generated to make all this stuff. Just paying the reservation rates just to, to, to reserve conference room space at a major convention hotel is more than most of us make in three or four months. Yeah. You know, it's huge. I mean, we looked at doing a conference here in New York State, a one-day conference, and there were some staggering problems with that. Both either we found a cheap way to do it, but then the insurance got too expensive. You know, it was a lot of little things that you have to look at. And a big organization like MUFON has found a way to get around that but then everybody says oh they're only they're money hungry and everything like that no i don't think everything costs 
costs money. It does. You know, and people t- sit here and tell me up in the, the groups and everything, oh, they're just money hungry. No, 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 no. Things cost money. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a good point. Again, when and you, those are the things you got to break down and realize any UFO conference or organization putting on a conference, like they're maybe breaking even if they're lucky. And the speakers are not living in. Trust me. Yeah. They, they fly us out there. They put us up. Uh, we have to pay for most of the time. We have to pay for our own meals, but yep. we get an honorarium. So if you're careful with how you how you feed yourself, you can come away maybe with a hundred dollars worth of profit, fifty or a hundred dollars worth of profit. But no, uh, yep. it, we're not. You know, and, and uh, Dr. Alexander made a good case of this, but but the, the 2015 one you and I were at that you know don't kind of making a living doing this. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, this is not a career. This is a passion and a journey, an individual journey, I'd have to say, for each person to find their own discoveries. You know, if you're in this to make money, go do something else because this is not this is not the place for that. Absolutely. It's just it's too niche and it's too scary for a lot of people too. the fact that we might not be alone is scary enough. The fact that they might be visiting is in our here is a whole other story. So money aside, it's a topic that many people don't want to think about from day to day, but we find ourselves doing it every single moment of almost every single day. Yeah. And that's, that's the issue. So I would like to get to the bottom of the answers, but the UFO community has a tendency to want to drink from the fire hose. And most people can only handle a little cupful or teaspoonful at a time, you know, but the, the, the word I'm hearing from most people is they're very interested. The word I hear from a lot of elders, I'm, I'm 66 and I go to – I got invited to a senior center here the other day to give a presentation at a senior center. This is the kind of invitations I'm getting. And um, that, that crowd really ate it up and the attitude they had is, God, I'd like to know the real truth on this before I die. Yeah, and I think we all think that from time to time. And I think that's what's interesting about Tom DeLong is you've got someone – yeah, he's not – you know, he's no, he's no youngin', but he's also not – you know, a senior citizen. And I think that's that representation is showing younger people. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is a cool, this could be a cool topic. And I have no doubt that that's going to change for you as these drip, drip splashes happen, Cheryl, that you are going to get invited to speak at more events, that what you're doing is going to be more respected. And it's going to be the book and the books, plural, that researchers in the next 10 you know, 5, 10, 15 years are going to use like we did with Stanton Friedman, you know, for so many yeah. years. So I have well, that's no... That's what we did a reference book. So, yep. yeah. It's, it's amazing. The book, uh, if you look up UFO Sightings Desk Reference on Amazon, that's where it is. We publish through Amazon. And uh, so they'll get, they'll get it to you in two to three days, depending upon what time of day you order it. Uh, you can get it through Barnes & Noble, but they get it right. They got to get it from Amazon anyway. But uh, Amazon's the easiest, fastest way to get it. And um, one thing I am recommending to people, and this is a very strong thing. We brought the price down from thirty nine ninety five down to twenty nine ninety five at the holiday ter- period, and it seemed to be a sweet spot for the book. And we sold a lot of books, so we said, "Well, we'll leave it there." Okay, but one thing we're encouraging people to do is print off a copy of the Amazon listing for the book. Print off a copy of the April twenty fourth New York Times UFO article, which is about me and Linda, and this book. Print those two things off. Staple them together. Go to your local neighborhood library, 
go to the information desk and said, I would like to see a copy of this in your collection, either in the in the reference section or in your general collection. Yes. Two things. You know, emails get ignored. But if you walk in with a book listing and a positive article written about the book and, and you are a living, breathing human being looking at that lady or guy at the information desk, they will take you seriously. Here's the reason why. Now, some people, the cynics out there, you know, don't want anybody to make any money on this stuff. We're saying, well, you're just trying to sell books. Yes and no. I said, if we are trying to do disclosure in this country, non-governmental disclosure, grassroots disclosure, data is important. There's 125,000 libraries out there. 120 are public libraries, about another four or 5,000 are college libraries. 125,000 libraries. Um, the average UFO book is in less than 10. Stanton Friedman's maybe make it into 200. I'm presently, with this book, we're presently up around 25 or 30. And I went, in, I went out with a mem on yeah. Facebook and said, do your duty for disclosure. Talk your local library into buying a copy. And I had all this horrible mail come back at me saying, oh, I don't have a responsibility to do that. You're just trying to sell books. And they just didn't get the little point that I made there. This is a, this is a way of doing grassroots disclosure. If you really want this just grassroots disclosure, let's get the information out there for the average person to be able to find it in the library. Exactly. See, that's enough to compel me to do that like tomorrow. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's awesome. No, I think it's you're easy. right. It's, it's the two articles. You, 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 you go off, you go to Amazon, you look up the UFO settings desk reference. Yeah. You, you get their little listing on it. You print it off. You Google New York Times UFO Costa. Okay. And you'll get the April 20, 24th article. Print that off and staple them together and go to the information desk and said, I would like to see this in your collection. So all of my listeners right now, please, please, please go do that for Cheryl's sake, for Linda's sake, for my sake. Please do that. Because, again, that grassroots disclosure is where it's at for sure. Yep. 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 Well, where can we find your articles, Cheryl? Articles. If you go to Syracuse New Times and when you hover over the navigation bar, there's a drop down there for blogs. Go down on the plugs, it says New York Skies, and in parentheses it says UFO column. You click on that, and whatever my current article is, is there. And then usually there's a, there's a link that will take you out to the archive, and there's four and a half years worth of articles out there on the archive. Exactly. And what's cool is every, you know, every week I have these algorithm things set up where I get UFO headlines you know, anywhere across the Internet. And I'm not kidding you. Every single one I follow always has one of your articles every single time, which I think is amazing. What? Funny how that worked out. In fact, that was one of the points Holiandro made when they were justifying the giving me the award was that I've dominated. I mean, somehow I've managed to dominate the the narrative out there with a continuous stream of good press. Yeah, and and that that, that just humbled me to be hell. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in, in today's world, like journalism is such a, you know, a malleable word, but you are a journalist talking about UFOs on a weekly basis in a respected, you know, news outlet. And that's super rare. So again, like you've paved the way for that and you've, you've taken the hardships and you've taken the successes, the failures, and you've done that. So I think, you know, you know, that's rewarding enough to know that anyone out there, just cause I'm from Syracuse, you know, I might be a little biased, but everyone out in the world is reading what you're writing i think that's amazing well Something you know amazing. because it's an internet blog it's an internet newspaper blog it's possible and, and management was doing this uh, they they have numbers that i don't have 
And uh, I managed to get into that site that looks this stuff up. And uh, at one point, my ed- this was back in 2015, my editor told me, he says, do you know you've got over 400 readers in Russia? You've got like 1,700 in Europe. You've got like 500 in, in Singapore, you know. Yeah. And hell, I got, I've got a following in Vietnam. And, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a web group on Facebook for the Vietnamese UFO group. And whenever I post something special for them, I, I put it to Google Translate and I put it up in Vietnamese for them, you know. Oh, and cool. They, just, they think it's just so sweet that they go to that extra trouble to do that. And I've developed quite a following in there. So That's awesome. Yeah, just always going that extra mile. That's what I love about your work. Well, Cheryl, this book by you and Linda will surely be one that I and so many other researchers go to from time and time. The sheer numbers alone. If this isn't enough for people to wake up and realize something extraordinary is happening, I don't know what will make them wake up. Uh, please understand, I've got a book. I'm a, I'm a mystery writer and I'm a playwright. I got a mystery, uh, I got a mystery com- coming out in June and we're doing a collection of my, sh- uh, my, my collected short stories is coming out probably sometime between now and fall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I wrote a novel in 2014 and we're just now finishing up the editing. Everything I put on the shelf while we were working on this book. So a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that I would have normally have had published by now, it's just now going to get to come out because this isn't the only thing I write. See, so, right. So, so people say, "What's your next project?" I said, "Well, uh, two more mysteries, uh, another collection of short stories, and uh, I've got a play I want to write." And and you know, there's a lot of other stuff that I've been writing over the years because I'm a media, I'm a performance media writer. So um, I'm looking forward to do it. I did do a story about UFOs uh, in a form of a play. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it in 2003, and it, it was it was a very dramatic piece too. It was yeah. a very nice. It's called the debriefing. It's set post World War, just post World War II, and it's a really good piece. I and would love to see that. Read it first and see it. If you second. go, if you go out to my website, CherylCosta dot com, and Cheryl with a C, Costa with a C, CherylCosta dot com. Uh, on the first page, you'll see uh, a, a menu that says uh, read her plays. And if you go to that page, you'll go down and look for the debriefing. And there it is. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. So this has been incredible. You are truly a Renaissance woman and one of the most uh, extraordinary people I am so blessed to have met in this field. So I have to thank you for coming on. And I know this will not be the last time. So again, thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies. My pleasure. Anytime. And we'll see you at Kenny Hoynes when you come to Syracuse again. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. We'll tip one back for sure. All right. That's it for this week's episode. Again, be sure to check out all of Cheryl's work at SyracuseNewTimes.com and order her book through Amazon. Somewhere in the Skies is climbing the iTunes charts, and we can only continue to do so with your help. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing today. All past episodes can be streamed through the website. You can find articles, news, and suggest guests and topics through the website as well, somewhereintheskies.com. Merchandise is available right now through TeePublic. All different designs and items. Go to TeePublic.com and search for the Sprague 5-1 store. That's T-E-E-Public.com. We're on Twitter at SomewhereSkies and Instagram at SomewhereSkiesPod. Don't forget to join our very active Facebook group, where I and many others post the latest news in the UFO and esoteric world. 
Just search for Somewhere in the Skies podcast on Facebook and request an invite. I will see you here next Monday. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.